Well, good morning. Good to be with you this morning. My name is Bryce. I'm the pastor here. We're beginning a new sermon series this morning. In these weeks leading up to Easter, we'll be looking at the seven last words of Jesus from the cross. And this morning, we're going to be uh, looking at the theme of forgiveness. So if you would stand with me, we're going to stand and give our attention to God's word. Uh, if you're following in one of the blue church Bibles, you can find Luke 23 on page 884. I'm going to read Luke 23, beginning at verse 32. It says this, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him that read, This is the King of the Jews. This is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life, for his sacrificial death. And we thank you that he is risen again. Would you fill us with hope as we consider the richness of of his forgiveness this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Famous last words. Sleep well, my sweetheart. Please don't worry too much. Also, Sarah might be a good name. Those were the final words of Robert Hall. If you've read John Krakauer's book, Into Thin Air, you uh, may remember the story of the most disastrous trip to the top of Mount Everest that ever took place. It happened in 1996. The team had reached the top of the world, 29,029 feet. And as they began to descend from the summit, a terrible storm set in. Uh, some of the team made it back to base camp, but Robert Hall, having waited for uh, some others on the team, was stranded about a thousand feet below the summit on an exposed shelf as a blizzard set in and winds gust up to a hundred miles an hour. And there Robert Hall, the leader of the expedition, uh, sat, having run out of oxygen, unable to move and hardly capable of really rational thought. He was an accomplished mountaineer. He had summited the highest peak on all seven continents. That day, he had summited Mount Everest for the fifth time. And yet, he knew he wasn't going to make it back. And in those final moments, as he faced, really faced the reality of impending death, his thoughts went not to his accomplishments, his life, of adventure, but to his family, to his wife back home in New Zealand, seven months pregnant with her first child. And so he radioed base camp 
where they were able to set up a link to a satellite phone. And he called his wife. And they just together decided on what they would name their, what she would later name their first child. Sleep well, my sweetheart. Please don't worry too much. Sarah might be a good name. The last known words of Robert Hall. Faced with the reality, the impending reality of death, his mind focused on what was most important to him, his family. <laughs> the average person speaks about 500 million words in a lifetime. That is a lot of talking. <laughs> Some of those words, like I do, are really, really significant. Other words, like what's going on, you know, or whatever Facebook asks us now, not really that consequential, right? But we see that uh, some words in people's lives are, are very, very important because they shine a light on who that person is. And that's especially true when we come to think about final words, famous last words. In this series, we're going to take a look at Jesus' final words from the cross. Jesus makes seven final statements as he hangs on the cross. And in these weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to consider most of them. Looking at these last words, we learn about, a lot about Jesus and his purpose, his values and his commitment. What does he say as he faces death? What does Jesus say as he goes to the cross? What does that tell us about who he is and why he came? And what does that mean for us and how we should live our lives? Father, forgive them, Jesus says, for they know not what they do. Forgiveness. So let's talk about forgiveness this morning. The first thing that I want you to see this morning is the scandal of forgiveness. The absolute scandal. Uh, forgiveness is kind of a kind word unless we really think about what it means and to really understand. I think when we talk about forgiveness, we have a choice of either sentimentalism or the scandalous nature of, of true forgiveness. Uh, on the surface of it, forgiveness, like we love forgiveness, right? Forgiveness seems great. We, we, we love uh, grace and mercy and we love the idea of forgiveness as long as it is being offered to us. You know, um, forgive your enemies and turn the other cheek is a great statement on the bumper sticker of a car. <laughs> but it's another thing when I am the one that is required to extend forgiveness to someone else. When I am the one who has been hurt or wounded, I'm not so fond of forgiveness then. But the words of Jesus are clear. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven, Jesus says. St. Paul, in one of the most quoted chapters of the Bible, in 1 Corinthians 13, it's the love chapter, right? He says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but love bears all things. And so what Jesus in the Bible is consistently holding out for us is this, that those who have experienced the lavish feast of God's forgiveness must also be people who forgive others. That's who we are. Do you see how scandalous forgiveness is? I want to receive forgiveness. I don't want to give forgiveness. If you don't see how scandalous this is, I don't think that you will taste the sweetness of how much you have been forgiven 
1994, during the Rwandan genocide, over one million people were murdered in about three months, about 100 days. The uh, Hutu and Tutsi people had lived peacefully as neighbors for generations, and yet in 1994, the, uh, they rose up against each other and a million people were massacred in a matter of months. They were killed not by bombs being dropped from planes, not by guns being fired. They were hacked to death with machetes. As much of the world uh, didn't really notice what was happening, a massacre took place in Rwanda. It was horrific and tragic and evil and yet in the aftermath, the Rwandan people have risen from the ashes and remarkably have responded with forgiveness. This week, a friend of mine shared a video with me about uh, uh, the story of a young woman. Um, and in this video, she, she talks, this young woman shares the story of soldiers coming to her village and murdering everyone in her family. For three generations, she was the only one left. And the next scene cuts to the man who was a part of the squad that came to murder her family. And they now work together on a coffee co-op, side by side. She says, well the man says, I was in the squad who killed this woman's husband. He said, after the war I came back for forgiveness but I was afraid she wouldn't forgive me. But the young woman, the only survivor in her family, said, God has given me a heart for forgiveness. Only forgiveness can win. We all work together in the garden now, the murderers and the victims. If there's a problem, those who killed us are now the ones who help us. She said, we still have our problems, but we work them out in the garden. Do you see the scandal of forgiveness? Does something in you not say, whoa, hold on. We shouldn't forgive that. Forgiveness is beautiful, and yet forgiveness is scandalous. Philip Yancey says, in a world of unspeakable atrocity, forgiveness indeed seems unjust, unfair, irrational. Individuals and families must learn to forgive, of course. But how do such high-minded principles apply in cases like Nazi Germany? As the philosopher Herbert Marcuse puts it, one cannot and should not go around happily killing and torturing and then when the moment has come, simply ask and receive forgiveness. Do you see what we're talking about when we talk about forgiveness? We're not talking about overlooking an offense. Like a driver who cuts in front of you in line and you say, oh, it's no big deal. Forgiveness is not the overlooking of an offense. It is the absorbing of a wrong. Friends, I don't want us to miss the impact of Jesus' words and his final actions by sentimentalizing this, by saying that forgiveness is about overlooking something. That's not what we're talking about. If I, you know, walking through a restaurant and you're sitting there and I kick the back of your chair and you turn around and I say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you say, it's no big deal. Like, that's overlooking something, right? But if I really hurt you, if I really wrong you, uh, if I owe you a debt, either you pay the debt or I pay the debt. If I owe you, I don't know, if I owe you $1,000, 
and I cannot pay you. You either exact payment from me by punishing me, or you absorb the debt by forgiving it yourself. That's what forgiveness is. Christians are people who forgive. And yet we find all manner of ways to avoid forgiving, I think. There are so many stupid things that we say about forgiveness. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, let me just be very clear about this. One of the stupid things that we say about forgiveness is forgive and forget. I don't think that's in the Bible. If it is, I mean, correct me. I, I'm pretty sure that's not in the Bible. <laughs> I should have looked that up. <laughs> Forgive and forget. If you hire a babysitter and that babysitter hurts your children, you are required eventually to forgive that babysitter. But the next time you need a babysitter, you do not call that babysitter again, right? You don't forget. Uh, that would be foolish. You don't put them in a position to do it again. But forgiveness is necessary. It's required of Christians, but it's hard in fact, forgiveness is, is, is almost impossible. The only thing worse than forgiveness actually is unforgiveness. I mean, forgiveness itself is, is, is so hard. But the only thing worse than forgiving somebody is not forgiving them. Have you considered what happens when you refuse to forgive? Have you considered the damage that is done by, other, uh, by unforgiveness? We think that when we refuse to forgive someone that we are silently punishing them but we're actually punishing ourselves. Anne Lamott says it best. She says, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. <laughs> Isn't that great? We have all sorts of reasons for not forgiving. Um, he needs to understand what he's done. I don't want to justify this behavior. Actions have consequences. I was the one who was wrong. They should be the one to make the first move. How can I forgive if she's not even sorry? All kinds of reasons that seem pious to not forgive. Do you notice in this passage, nobody asks for forgiveness. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he simply offers it. Nobody's asking for forgiveness. Nobody deserves it. That's the whole point. But when we refuse to be give, forgive, we think we're poisoning the other person. But anger and bitterness that is not forgiven will harden your heart and imprison you. The only thing worse than forgiving someone is not forgiving them. Frederick Buchner said this, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick, your to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. That's a guy who knows how to write a sentence, isn't it? Bitter anger, unforgiveness will destroy you. They will destroy your relationships. They will destroy your family. When you forgive, you let two people out of prison. You let the one who has wronged you and yourself free. 
Forgiveness is scandalous. So let me ask you this. Is there somebody that you need to forgive? Is there somebody maybe that the Holy Spirit is prompting you right now in the back of your mind where you're saying, you know, I've avoided this person. I've avoided this situation. Is there someone that you need to forgive? Is there someone you need to ask forgiveness from? Forgiveness is hard, but the only thing worse is not forgiving. So forgiveness is scandalous, but secondly, I want you to see the experience of forgiveness. If you're going to forgive, you've got to experience forgiveness first. And the sweetness of the gospel is this, that your king opens the door to your freedom by forgiving you. The gospel is good news because Jesus is a God who forgives. At the end of his life, I mean, do you understand the horror of crucifixion? The, the closest analogy that we can maybe imagine is a lynch mob. And Jesus was tried in an illegal overnight trial. Uh, he, he's, he's rushed out into the street by a crowd and hurried to Golgotha by a, by a crowd that really doesn't know what they're doing. He's, he's strung up on a cross, naked, exposed, humiliated, suffering. And as he hangs there, he doesn't protest about his rights. He doesn't think about himself at all. Instead, he cries out, Father, forgive them. He's thinking about you, Jesus' final thoughts. And that final moment, go not to himself, not to the injustice of what he's experiencing. His thoughts go to others, to you, to me, to forgiveness. Father, forgive them. Interesting, who, who, who is Jesus, who's the them that Jesus is talking about there? Father, forgive them. Who's he talking about? Think about that for a minute. I mean, who are the people involved in this scene? You've got the Roman soldiers, right? Roman soldiers, they're just there doing their job. It wasn't their decision to execute Jesus. They're just there. You know, they're complicit in this heinous act. You've got the crowd that's just sort of standing by, not interrupting this atrocity. They're, they're just there. Uh, you've got the two thieves, of course, the rebellious ones looking to shift their blame onto somebody, anyone, anybody other than themselves. Tertullian was a uh, pastor, a theologian in the, early, in the early church. He said this. He said, just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is ever crucified between these two heirs, legalism and license. Just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, the gospel is constantly being crucified between the two heirs of legalism and license. What does that mean? What he's saying is this. There are two thieves that steal the power of the gospel. The first is legalism or moralism, which stresses truth at the expense of grace. Moralists are people who um, don't believe that they really need to be forgiven. I mean, sure, I'm not perfect, but is my sin really so bad? I haven't really disobeyed God. Uh, it's not that big of a deal. And so forgiveness for a moralist uh, doesn't sound that sweet because moralists, we don't really believe we're that bad. We don't really believe we have offended God. We believe that we're better than most other people and so we're acceptable 
to God because of what we've done. So we ignore our sin. We don't see the debt that we owe. And so the offer of forgiveness rings hollow. That's the first thief of the gospel, the, the kind of moralistic, legalistic thief of the gospel. But the second thief of the gospel is, is licentiousness or relativism or irreligion that says that there really is no such thing as truth objectively and emphasizes grace at the expense of truth. <coughs> the relativist stresses grace without truth. If there even is a God, surely he accepts me just as I am. The idea that God has standards for my life is absurd. Like, let's not be ancient about this. And yet the relativist can never truly experience the love of God because the love of God comes to the relativist without cost. What did it cost your God to love you? The God of the Bible loves you at infinite expense. The God of the relativist just loves because, <laughs> until he doesn't. These are the two basic tendencies of humans. Each of us is prone to one or the other, and Jesus forgives Jesus came to forgive both sorts of people. To the moralist, forgiveness allows you to really be honest about what's really going on in your life for the first time. For the moralist, your sins and flaws run much deeper than you let yourself see. In our drive to be seen as good enough, we exaggerate the faults of others and ignore or minimize our own faults. But the offer of forgiveness allows us to see ourselves as we truly are because we are accepted by God, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. Forgiveness is good news for moralists. Jesus' offer of forgiveness opens the door to honesty, but to the relativist, forgiveness allows us to find true love and acceptance because it shows us that we are really loved by God, not just as we are, but despite who we are. We can, we can, we can feel the love of God because... <coughs> We don't have to pretend that we're something that we're not. We are, deeply, we are deeply loved despite the unlovable parts of ourselves. God loves us anyways. Jesus opens the door to true acceptance by forgiving us. So let me ask you the question, which of these sorts of people is Jesus forgiving? Who is the them? Well, it's everyone, right? the soldiers complicit, the crowds just around, the thieves mocking him, the moralists, the relativists, the soldiers doing their job, you, me, all of us, in our rebellion against God and in our twisted attempts to obey God, we have incurred a debt of guilt and shame. And on the cross, God satisfies the debt that we owe, not by exacting that debt from us, but by paying it himself. Forgiveness is such good news. When you realize that you are a rebel and your rebellion nailed Jesus to the cross, like when you realize that you are complicit in the death of Jesus, and as he hung on the cross, his heart went out to you instead of hating you, that he calls out for your forgiveness, it will change you. It will change you. As Jesus hung on the cross, he didn't protest his rights, but his heart went out to you to forgive. That is utterly transformative. That is such good news. Ray Cortez is a, uh, a pastor in Florida who I uh, appreciate. He tells the story of a friend of his who was unfaithful to his wife. 
and she knew it. And he was going home to face the shame of what he had done and to own up to it. He was going home to face her wrath. He assumed that his marriage was over, that he had wrecked his family, that life as he knew it was coming to an end. He assumed that his wife would leave him, but he had a more immediate problem. He was afraid that she might kill him or scratch his eyes out. And he went home and sat with her on the couch and confessed his stupidity to his bride. And she said, you have hurt me so much and I am so angry at you, but you are my husband and we will get through this. And then she kissed him. And he said, that kiss saved my life. The question, friends, is have you experienced the kiss of the forgiveness of God? If you have, it will change every single thing about your life. Do you see what forgiveness is? Forgiveness is not pretending that it doesn't matter. Forgiveness is absorbing the debt instead of making the other pay person pay it themselves. I mean, isn't that scandalous? He didn't deserve that. How could she welcome him back after what he had done? He did nothing to deserve it. Exactly. That's the whole point. Forgiveness is not deserved. So let me ask you, have you experienced the undeserved kiss of God's forgiveness? Have you? Jesus goes to the cross to forgive you. He suffers alienation from the Father to forgive you your debt. He gives you his perfection so that God smiles at you. Forgiveness is such good news. You will only stop running from God or from yourself when you have experienced the kiss of God's sweet forgiveness, when you deserve to be rejected, God welcomes you instead. Forgiveness is great news. Amen. Finally, thirdly, following our forgiving king. Notice with me how this passage ends. Verses 37 and 38. Those who mocked him said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Verse 38, there was an inscription over him, a sign that read, This is the king of the Jews. <coughs> Luke closes this, you know, narrative emphasizing the kingship of Jesus. One of the great themes of the gospel is, of Luke is, that Jesus is the king, but this is what he's saying. This is what our king looks like. We have a king who doesn't die peacefully in old age, in satin sheets, in the most peaceful, comfortable way imaginable. We follow a king who dies forgiving those who were killing him. And so we follow him and we serve him 
by being people who extend forgiveness to others. Those who have feasted at the sweet feast of the king's forgiveness must also extend forgiveness to others. If your life has collided with God and you have experienced his forgiveness, it will transform you and it will make you into a person who has forgiven. We cannot be forgiven much without forgiving others. Forgiveness, experiencing the forgiveness of God will make you a person who enters into situations with others, not ignoring the problems, not ignoring the wrongs, but well aware of your own weakness, well aware of your own need for grace. If my tendency is to see the faults in others while ignoring or minimizing my own faults, that should warn me that I perhaps have not drunk deeply of the well of God's forgiveness. If we struggle to forgive, let me just say this bluntly, if you struggle to forgive, perhaps you have not fully experienced the forgiveness of God. I know that's a blunt statement. How can I say that? Well, let me, let me read to you again the words I read earlier from Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If you do not forgive others, if you minimize your faults and exaggerate the faults of others, perhaps you have not fully experienced the depth of God's forgiveness. If you have drunk deeply from the well of God's forgiveness, it will make you a gracious person. It doesn't mean ignoring the wrongs that have been done. It means recognizing the debt that you owe. Because here in Jesus' final words, we see the nature of our God and King, whom we follow by going into the world as agents of forgiveness. So what does that look like? Let's talk very plainly for a minute. We live in a world that is desperate for forgiveness and has no idea how to find it. And we all know this. We live in a world that is increasingly polarized, where we are increasingly um, at odds, uh, where we are increasingly divided largely over political ideology, though maybe that's an oversimplification. But I think what is changing in the culture that we live in is not, it's not that we have strongly held opinions. It's that we can no longer tolerate people who have different convictions. And friends, the only solution is to learn to forgive. It's the only possible way forward. That's the world that we live in. My fear is that the church is being colonized by the same mentality. The world longs for forgiveness but doesn't have the resources to forgive. We do. And if we refuse to be people who can get along with people who deeply differ from us, then I fear that we're no longer a city on a hill. The salt has lost its saltiness. And so instead of being a city on a hill, and instead of being a refuge for those who are weary of living in a world that beats people up, 
who are in need of forgiveness. Instead of the church being a refuge, we mirror the divisions in our world by pointing out the faults of others and refusing to forgive. And it's tragic. And we might respond by saying, but, 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 but if people are wrong and we don't tell them, how will they know? And I just want you to look at the passage again and say, see that Jesus goes to his death not saying, Father, tell them how wrong they are, but Father, forgive them. I mean, it's scandalous, isn't it, that the Savior dies without one more time pointing out what's wrong with the world. And maybe we should learn from his example. Please hear me, I have said this repeatedly. Forgiveness is not ignoring wrong. Forgiveness is not ignoring wrong. Forgiveness is absorbing the wrong yourself. And that's powerful. And that changes, that changes people. And I am pretty sure, if I can just be honest, that uh, I know a way that I could grow our church fairly quickly by picking one side of the aisle and just railing against the people on the other side in Jesus' name. I have confidence that that would grow our church, but it would not be the way of Jesus. It would not bring him glory or honor. His final words were not show them how wrong they are, but forgive them. Can I be honest with you? It is terrifying to be a pastor in a world that desperately needs to forgive but has no idea how to do it. And it's terrifying to be the pastor of a small church because I cannot afford to lose you. I can't. And so the temptation that faces me is to soft pedal the gospel because I'm afraid that if I need to say something hard or just be myself and make mistakes, that I will lose you. And I can't afford to lose you. We live in a world that is increasingly divided where we talk about loving each other, but we don't do it because forgiveness is essential to loving anyone. And we have the resources to forgive. As we journey together as a church, I am going to fail you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. In my zeal to see God's kingdom grow, I am going to step on people. I'm sorry. In my desire to bring you to Jesus, I'm going to overstate things and hurt you. And sometimes I'm going to do it and not even have a good excuse because I'm just obsessed with myself. And I'm sorry. And I don't want to hurt you, but I will. And if we're going to journey together, as God's life-giving presence in this place, we have to be a church that learns to forgive because as we do, we will extend the sweetness of the gospel to a world that is weary and beat up and bruised and in need of healing. So here's the question, friends. Can you live at peace with someone who has wronged you? Can you live at peace with someone who has wronged you? Will we follow Jesus, our Savior and our King, and become people who forgive? 
That is the question. A couple of years ago, you would have seen in the news the name Larry Nasser. Larry Nasser, who, as a doctor for the U.S. gymnastics national team, used his position to hurt hundreds of girls and young women cruelly, evilly, heinously. And um, in his sentencing, the judge gave his victims the opportunity to speak to him. And Rachel Den Hollander, who was the first person to go to the police to um, warn of Larry Nasser's uh, horrible actions. She spoke to the man who had horribly wronged her. And she said this. She looked him in the eyes and she said, Larry, should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Jesus so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray that you will experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that as well. <laughs> wow. Rachel Den Hollander is a woman who is bravely following Jesus. You see, forgiveness is not about overlooking wrongs done. Forgiveness is about choosing to absorb the wrong instead of exacting it from the other. We have a God who forgives. This is who we are. We are forgiven. It is scandalous. So we forgive others. Would you pray with me? Oh Jesus, we can't imagine the horror of the cross. Jesus, I didn't even go to the DMV this week without loudly proclaiming how awful it was to multiple people. <laughs> <coughs> and yet, you endured so much to forgive us. We thank you for the sweetness of the gospel that though you were wronged and offended, you didn't hold our sin against us, but instead paid for it yourself. <sighs> Would that wash over us afresh this morning? Would we live as redeemed, forgiven people, set free from guilt, set free from shame, would we become people who go out into the world as agents of forgiveness 
there is so much wrong and hurt and suffering in our world. We know that, everybody knows that. What we don't know how to find is our way to forgiveness. Look, Jesus, you've given us the resources to be people who forgive. In our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, would we be people who do not simply back away when an offense is given, but sit down together and say, I'm sorry, and work it out because the gospel is true. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.